You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome. We are in our second week of Genesis, and uh, we're going to take the next seven weeks. We're going to go through Genesis 11. And then during Lent, we're going to take a look at the last week of Christ through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, Logan started us off by highlighting the context in which Genesis was first shared. And there are several Egyptian creation myths. Um, the, the reason why there's different myths is really just based upon region. Uh, if you're God of your town probably takes on a more important role in creation if you're telling the story, right? So, um, but all the creation myths really share in these qualities. Let's take a look at this slide. All the Egyptian gods have their source in nature. All of them. They all have their source in nature. And there's many gods in the creation myth, and, and therefore there's many gods to appease. That's a, that's a lot of gods to keep happy. And creation is full of chaos and subject to the whims of the many gods. In fact, it's a, it's a surprise that we ever had creation at all. And then the gods are at the center of the story. And man is an accident, and so this is, this is what Israel was inundated. These were the stories that Israel was inundated with for 400 years. And then you have the fact that they were in slavery for 400 years. Now, I've been to the POW Museum down south. I think it's down in Georgia. I've traveled so many places I've lost track of where some of these places are. But uh, if you ever get the chance to go to the POW Museum, uh, do it. It's a, it's a great visit. But I was struck by the fact that, the, uh, that John McCain and the guys that were prison of war during Vietnam War, they said that those who survived had this hope, had this belief that they were going to escape. And so that's why John McCain survived. I think he was in captivity for six or seven years. The Israelites, like after two, three, four generations, you start getting ten generations in. And do you have hope? Is there any hope left? Is this ever going to change? Your value is found in what you produce. Because if you don't produce, the state doesn't need you anymore. And you don't belong. You don't belong here. You don't belong from the place that you came from. You're at the bottom of the totem pole, the pecking order. And maybe the worst thing that Israel came away with in their 400 years of slavery and, and in the creation myths is that God must be angry. Like the sense that God must be angry had to just permeate the thought life of the people of Israel. 
So that's just some of the context for the first hearers of this Genesis story. And Logan mentioned that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we will see elements that suggest that stylistically this is a collection of Mesopotamian poems. It changes after chapter 11, it changes, becomes a little more historic in nature. But, you know, if I'm telling a story to, to some little kids or to some young adults or to, some, to the elderly, or if I tell that same story, um, so three different audiences, or if I tell that same story, uh, one to be humorous or, or to uh, encourage or to... Um, or to pro- provide instruction. Like, depending on how I tell the story and who I'm telling the story to, the telling of the story may sound a little different. Does that make sense? If I'm telling the story to be humorous, like, there's pieces I'm going to leave out, and there's going to be pieces that I highlight. Or if I'm using it to encourage you, there may be, I may not use the same pieces I would have. It doesn't mean the story is wrong. It's just I'm telling the story with a purpose. And so we're going to see in this story that there's repetition, that there's cadence. It's a poem. It's written as a poem. I want you to just kind of track these uh, themes that are repeated. Five times God said he created. Five times it says that God separated Six times we're going to see evening and morning. Seven times God's going to say it is good. And ten times the story will tell us that God said. So we're going to have these repeated themes. We're going to see this cadence. It's a poem. And so we should read it like a poem. Now in Hebrew scriptures, we're going to see a structure called Chiasms, and we've talked about chiasms. I don't know if we've ever mentioned why chiasms. You know, in the Western world, we tend to lead our students to the point we want to make. We say, hey, this is what I want you to understand, and then we have bullet points, and we we tell you what we're going to tell you, we tell you what we told you, and then we tell you what we told you, right? We've heard of maybe three-point sermons, And so that's the Western way of leading people to knowledge. In the Eastern world, they tend to lead their students on a process of discovery. And so in chiasms, when you start noticing these structures, it makes you stop and go, ooh, what's this structure mean? What's God trying to say in this? And so we could have the ABCD, DCBA structure or the ABCD, ABCD structure. And sometimes the point is right in the middle. The treasure is right in the middle and it makes you really question and wrestle. Well, why is that the point? In fact, we will talk about this a little bit more in footnotes because um, there is a structure, a larger structure that has a middle. And we'll talk about what that middle is and why it's there. Um, sometimes it's, a, it's the way the story deviates from the structure. 
where you have A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, but D is different than the last D. Why is that different? We may see that today. So Logan asked you some questions last week that I think are important just to remind us of. Do you know your groom? God identifies himself as a groom throughout the story. Jesus uses marriage language. We're called the bride of Christ. And the question is, do you know your groom the way he wants you to know him? Or do some of the myths, some of the legends that culture is perpetuating, influencing your perception of your groom? In what context do you know him? What context did, were you first introduced to him? Because that's important. And then what, God, what does God actually, actually say about you? So let's see if we can find some hidden gems in the story. We'll start off with Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning, God... In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The rabbis will tell you this is the most important statement in all of Scripture. And I agree with them. Israel is at Mount Sinai because God rescued them. In the beginning, God rescued Israel. He says that he is their creator, have you noticed that the stories of God and man always start with God? I think about it. When, when do you see a patriarch pursuing God first? We always see God start the story. God always starts a story. God is pursuing you, has pursued you. He will pursue you. And then when you add that fifth word, in the beginning, God created. Well, that too is a revolutionary statement. In fact, several thousand years later, this is the most debated topic of our time, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. You can read chaotic nothingness. We'll probably talk about that. And footnotes. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the heaven, the expanse heaven. And there's evening and there's morning, second day. Let me ask you a question. How does your day start? Morning, right? Our days start 
with the morning. Isn't this odd that God, for a second time, it says evening and morning? Well, hang on to that a little bit. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, planting plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, which in, is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is it, their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, third day. There's that refrain again. And God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for the seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light was to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So God creates the sun, moon, and stars on which day? Day four. How did we know there was evening and morning the first three days? How do we tell if it's evening or morning, don't we walk outside and look for the sun or the moon and the stars? Interesting. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. We'll have to talk about that in footnotes because there's another repeated theme, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there's evening and there's morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So let's stop here for a moment. Um, I'm going to highlight a few, a few things, then we'll continue to read through Genesis 2, verse 3. Um, let's bring up this next slide here. Did you notice... That in day one, two, and three, God, by and large, is separating things. He's separating things. He separates the light from the darkness, the water from the sky, the land from the seas. And in days four, five, and six, he fills things. He fills the light and darkness with the sun, moon, and stars. He fills the water and sky with fish and birds. He fills the land with animals and humans, and they have a tendency to jump into the sea sometimes. 
We have a chiasm here. A, B, C, A, B, C. Isn't that interesting? Huh. This could be a poem. Um, if nothing else, we should know that this is not a scientific manual. Do I believe that God created the heavens and earth? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I think this poem describes everything scientifically about that creation? I don't know, because it's a poem. It's, is that the point? Can God create in this fashion? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what I get from this is that God is very purposeful in his creation. God is very purposeful in his creation. Creation started with chaos until God spoke. And it's the last time we see chaos in this story. And there's how many gods? There's one God. There's only one God. And is he angry with you? No. He thinks you are good. He thinks you are good. Boy, we like to jump to Genesis 3. <laughs> God is separate from nature and creation. He is separate from it. Like he, he loves it. He's not part of it. Everything has a beginning except for God. And again, God says his creation is good. He says it's good. There's a second chiasm that I want to highlight, though. And this one you have to actually see. It's actually a little bit easier to see in Hebrew. And so I grabbed the Hebrew Bible. Paragraph one, day one, is a baby paragraph. And then day two is a mommy paragraph. Day three is a daddy paragraph. Day four, again, is a daddy paragraph. Day five is a mommy paragraph. What would we expect to see if we are an astute learner, if we've been studying the scriptures, what would we expect to see for day six? A baby paragraph. That is a big baby. No one wants to have that baby. <laughs> now, the part that we read, the part of day six that we read, would actually make it a baby paragraph if it only included the living creatures, the things that crawl on the ground. Made me think of Australia when I kept reading that. So let's read the part about Man, because that's the big bulging part of this baby paragraph. Let's read through that and see what God has to say. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You should have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Because, of course, God gets tired, right? Probably not. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. When God tells his story to Israel for the first time, a groom introducing himself to his bride, at the end of the poem, he breaks away from the pattern of the patterns of the poem in two distinct ways. Number one, see, you can do this the Western way. <laughs> he makes creation of man stand out like a protrusion. Remember our chiasm? The creation of man is the great big protrusion at the end of the chiasm. Think about that. And if that's not enough for you, God calls all the other days tov, good. On the day he created you, he says, very good. Very good. And if that is not enough for you, bara, the word for create, which, which is reserved for God, by the way, that, that word, that verb is reserved for God throughout the scriptures. Not always, but most of the time it's just for God, and it means to create out of nothing. I created dinner last night. I used eh, four or five different uh, ingredients to make that happen. It was tov. But I used things to create. God created out of nothing. And that word I said is repeated five times in the poem. It starts our poem off, right? In the beginning, God created. It's in the middle of the poem, but then three times in one verse, God says, He spoke you into existence. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Guys, think about the Egyptian myth stories. Man is an accident. The gods are the focus of the story. Who does God make the focus of his creation account to his bride? He makes you the focus. 
you are not an accident. You are good. You are not an accident. You are good. You're not the mistake that Egypt says you are. You're not the mistake that the world says you are. Created in God's image. You are tov meod in the eyes of your creator. You are the crowning glory of God's very purposeful creation. I don't care what the world tells us. I don't care what you've been told. And then the second way that God deviates from the patterns of the poem. Did you know something missing from day seven? And there was evening. And there was morning. Why would God use, and there was evening, and there was morning? We know that our day starts when the sun rises, not as it's going down. But if you've been a slave for 400 years, and all you know is slavery, and you work before the sun comes up, and you work before the sun goes down, and you work every day, if that is your existence, and if you believe that your value, your worth comes out of your ability to produce, your ability to keep the master satisfied. What are the odds that you don't know what it means to rest? And if you've had this master that wants you to work, that wants you to keep them appeased, and it's not just the Egyptians, but the Egyptian gods, they needed to be appeased too. Maybe God's trying to say, I'm a different kind of God than what you're used to. I'm a different kind of God than, than the world says I am. And I want you to start by resting. Because your value was determined the day I created you. You don't have to prove anything to me. I want you to just be. Be a human being. Instead of a human doing. And so, Sabbath. There is no evening and morning in the creation account for Sabbath. Marty says it this way. It's as if the author is inviting us to rest, to a rest that never stops. In what ways do we make it obvious that we have a hard time living by what God is trying to communicate to us in, in this poem? Maybe in the way we eat. Maybe in the way we don't eat. I, uh, I, I don't know why, but ever since I was probably Isaiah's age, uh, I would overeat at dinner time. I had this sense that there wasn't going to be enough. So I, I ate like I was three times bigger than I am today. <laughs> I still struggle at dinner time. Like if 
if I eat dinner the way breakfast and lunch, there's something in the back of my head that says, you got to eat more, Rob. Like I'm full. And there's something in the back of my head saying, you got to eat more. You got to eat more. Maybe it's the way we run to the wrong kinds of relationships. Or maybe it's the way we run away from relationships. The way we try to prove that we are enough, whether it's in our home or at, at work, or maybe it's the way we try to hide the fact that we know we're not enough, or at least we suspect we're not enough. Maybe it's the way we struggle with body image, or the way we tear others down so that we feel better about ourselves. And what about Sabbath? In what ways do we show that we struggle to rest in North America? Um, the way we overwork? The way we have a hard time saying no? The way we struggle with anxiety? The way we struggle with over fear of the future? I think these are ways that we wrestle with, we struggle with. And, and it's not even, th I think a lot of times we're not even thinking about it. It's our automatic responses. I think Israel had an automatic response towards God. And we're going to see that. You know, if you look at the Exodus story, you're going to see some of those automatic responses. God spends two years with Israel at Mount Sinai. I think it takes some time for these automatic responses to get out of us. The Egyptians and the Egyptian experiences told Israel a false narrative, that there are many gods to appease, that our world is full of chaos and subject to the whims of the many gods, that the gods are at the center of the story, the humans are an accident, that your values found in what you produce, that there's no hope, that you are at the bottom of the pecking order and God must be angry. But God has something else to say. Is there chaos in our world? Yeah, there is. But when God speaks, it brings peace. You are invited to rest first because your value is already determined when he created you. You are enough. You have enough. Have you guys ever wrestled with feeling like you just don't have enough and, and yet you walk through your house and you're like, I have so much. Why do I wrestle with that inside of me? So the implication is this, because you are tov mailed, very good. Rest. Glenn and um, <coughs> Logan, can you guys grab the communion and pass it out for me? Um, we're getting ready to uh, share in communion together while the elements are being passed out. I'll have a few more things to say, but just know that we have an open table, which means that if you're here to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you call him Lord and Savior, you are welcome to join us. Um, if you don't feel like you can uh, share in the elements today, that's, that's fine. There's, there's no um, 
shame in that. You are still told me I got mine. I got, I got, I got the big cracker. Um, we're going to hold the elements and then we'll take them together. So while those are being passed out, how many of you are already thinking, yeah, but there's Genesis 3? I see some smiles out there. Did you notice that God chose to start his story in Genesis 1? In my mind, as I picture God telling this story through Moses, I picture, I picture uh, God telling Moses to stop with, with Genesis 1 and, and just let that permeate in them. There's something about the fact that we know that we have failed, that we have faltered, that we have stumbled. I don't need anybody else to tell me that I've messed up in life. I've got that perfectly figured out myself. If you want to tell me I'm going to screw up, you could go ahead. I already sense that deep in my soul. And maybe that's why Jesus came. I think there's a lot of reasons why Jesus came, but I think one of the reasons why he came is because we struggle with believing what God says when he says we are tov me'od. We struggle with resting. If you ever wondered why Israel, why the Jews are so intent on celebrating Sabbath. This is why. It's Genesis 1 and verses, first few verses of Genesis 2. That's why they focus on that. But remember Jesus with the Pharisees? Man was made for Sabbath. Not Sabbath for man. I struggle with trusting deep in my heart that God just smiles when he looks at me. And so when I consider the cross, I consider what Jesus Christ came to do. It's a word picture, the life that he lived and then willing to lay down that life in order that I might have new life. That's freeing. And I don't think Jesus going to the cross was just to undo Genesis 3, but to get us back to Genesis 1. Get us back to knowing that we are tov me'od. Get us back to resting in who God created us to be. So, in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he broke it, knowing that his body would be broken too for you and me. Let's do this in remembrance of him.
And he took the cup knowing that his blood was spilled on the ground for you and me. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Lord, what an amazing God you are. There is no one like you. Lord, I want to believe everything that you say about me and everything you say about my brother on my left and on my right, Lord, that they are tov me'od as well. May you be glorified in us, Lord, as we live out rest. Thank you for your son, our savior, who got our eyes off of our brokenness, Lord, and onto a cross. And not just not just the cross, Lord, but the resurrection. Knowing that you could do that, that you would do that for your son, knowing that you'll do it for us as well. So grateful. Lord, we're going to worship you this morning through one more song. If creation will celebrate you, so will we. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side. Um... <laughs>